podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Five, four, three. Hello and two, welcome back to Tennis one, Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.uk and the iNewspaper. Um, we are going to be doing our usual kind of US Open wrap up and look forward that we uh, try and do every day during uh, Flushing Meadows, although. I apologise again for the uh, sloppiness of our schedule this uh, fortnight. Anyway, we've got something a little bit different today because I've got someone new with me, um, which is very exciting. Um, I'm delighted to say it's a new voice, although if you've been listening to Wimbledon Radio or maybe some WTA commentaries or all sorts of places, you will have heard the voice of Pippa Horn, who is here with me today. Hello, Pippa. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, very much looking forward to chatting. My pleasure. Um... Pippa, I suppose I thought what might be fun is if we spend a bit of time talking about you. Um, if you're like me, you'll really enjoy talking about yourself. So it'd be very easy. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I, I guess for people who don't know you, and this is a question I often ask interviewees as a kind of uh, an icebreaker or something, but I also think it can be very instructive, is if you tell me your very first kind of memory of tennis itself or your very earliest memory of either watching tennis or playing tennis or whatever? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I actually come from a tennis family. My mum is a coach um, and my auntie is a coach as well. So um, I spent a lot of time growing up just being in sort of a tennis environment. Mm. And I think my very first memory of tennis is my mum every Friday at uh, the local village hall would uh, basically do a little mini sort of coaching camp um for i would say between sort of um maybe six and eight kids and it would be you know mini tennis balls they would all be around i don't know perhaps sort of five to six onwards Mm. um and my mum used to tell me that i was too young to play um so i would just sit there and watch and i just remember being so incredibly bored and also just so I just loved watching everyone play I was so intrigued by it so interested um and I think one day I just got up and and started playing Mm. and I didn't ask my mum I just did it um and the rest is history (laughs) (laughs) and at what point did you kind of realize you were this is actually something you're quite good at like was there a point at which someone else noticed or you noticed and thought oh actually I am better than other kids at this um again really good question so um I think growing up I I played tennis because I absolutely loved it and um my mum used to tell me stories of um I would I would actually play competitively a little bit you know in the kind of county clothes and that sort of thing those mini tournaments that you play when you're younger I think my team I'm from Norfolk and I think my team were called uh, the Norfolk Nippers um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I used to compete in these little mini red mini orange and green events and I didn't know how to score. Well, actually, I don't think it was a case of not knowing how to score. I just don't think I was necessarily bothered by winning or losing. Mm. So I would um, have an absolute whale of a time playing these matches. And I would come off court and have absolutely no idea whether I won or lost. Mm. Um, I I would have to ask my mum. And so I think that just proves for such an, like, 
such an early part of my childhood. It was definitely just something that I, I loved doing. Um, it wasn't until um, I was a bit older, perhaps sort of 13, 14, that I think I realized that actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay at this sport. <laughs> um, and I won the, the national championships, the under 18 nationals when I was 14. Mm. Um, and I think prior to that, it had literally just been, you know, a bit of a hobby, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and then when I won that event, I definitely got a lot more attention. Um, you know, people were sort of saying, okay, you need to um, leave behind mainstream education. It was a case of coming to train at um, the National Tennis Centre, the LTA. Um, and I think that's when it. Pippa, probably... can I just? Sorry, I'm really sorry to interrupt you. My doorbell's just gone. Can you give me of one course. second? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you much. partner's bloody gin box <laughs> sorry um i totally cut you off mid-flow so just pick it up wherever you want and i can stitch it together yeah so i think i think prior to that um it had all been you know quite a nice little fun hobby um and then definitely winning the nationals at 14 was a bit of a turning point for me hmm um, it's interesting because it sounds like you weren't that competitive as a kid. Are you, are you an only child by any chance? I'm not an only child. I have an older brother and I, I don't know what you're about to ask me here, but I, I think the, the concept of competitiveness in tennis players is a really, really interesting one. Okay. Um, and one that I can also elaborate on because I think I'm a bit different in that sense. Hmm. I don't think innately I'm a very competitive person. Right. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I always knew there was going to be a ceiling for me in terms of my professional tennis journey. Because if you look at those who have made it, they are innately competitive people. They are just furiously competitive in literally every single thing that they do. Mm. And I think for me, it was a bit of a case of, you know, I absolutely loved playing tennis. And because I was thrust into this competitive environment, it definitely made me more competitive. But I don't think I ever had that innate competitiveness that is required. Mm. I remember playing tennis matches uh, when I was a young girl. And, you know, when people will sort of get you know, have a bit of an outburst on court or get a bit angry or upset. There was never a sort of, there was never pleasure in that for me. Yeah. I think some people who are, you know, innately competitive are like, yes, you know, my, my opponent's feeling this and my opponent's feeling that. I just wanted to give them a hug, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it is something that actually I, I've thought about and something that maybe I didn't realize at the time, but definitely in my sort of post-tennis journey, mm. I've realized that I perhaps didn't have one of the most key characteristics required in order to make it to the very top of the game. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I only asked the sibling question because very often, and I, I wrote a chapter in one of my books about it, where the younger sibling is so often like dragged upwards and given this hugely kind of competitive nature by the fact of being dragged up. But, you know, it obviously it doesn't apply to everyone. Um, you mentioned your sort of ceiling there. 
at what age did you kind of not peak but how high did you get tell us a bit about sort of the the level you got to and and what what kind of happened when you decided to stop yeah so um i was a, a very good junior um i sort of played the um the the junior tour there's an equivalent of the wta tour on on the junior side so you've also got the slams um and i think i mean to be honest um it it became very clear in in my late teens i would say that i didn't quite have the body for tennis so i was competing with the likes of um harriet dart katie bolter um those were all sort of my age um, mm. and we went on lots of trips together etc cetera, etc cetera. they obviously decided to to take it professionally um in my late teens i decided that i wanted to take the college route instead mm. And as I say, I think it became quite abundantly clear around that age that I didn't quite have the body for professional tennis. I was born with a structural back issue, which basically meant that I couldn't play for more than a couple of weeks in a row. Mm. So there did seem to be sort of physical hurdle after hurdle. Um, and I then, I think, grew in, in my late teens because of the experiences that I'd had and you know, with all of those injuries, they hadn't necessarily been particularly happy ones. I'd spent a lot of time off the court, injured, wasn't able to train, wasn't able to compete um, in the same way that my contemporaries were. And then I actually grew in my late teens to to sort of really dislike competing. And I don't know mm. whether that came from the kind of competitiveness that we touched on earlier, but it had actually been something that I, I'd quite enjoyed. Yeah. Um, you know, the process of not necessarily beating people, but being on court and competing and, and performing. Um, it, it had been something that I'd, I'd quite enjoyed up until that point. Um, and then all of a sudden it, it actually became something that, that terrified me. And right. I think, this happens to a lot of people. It's, it's probably something that isn't really particularly talked about. But I think the moment you in, you stop enjoying the process of competing is is the moment that you really need to to take stock. I think, and I think loneliness was another one. I think I I also realised how lonely the world was. Mm. Um, you know, it's very tough to make uh, authentic connections when you're competing against rivals. You're constantly traveling. You're sort of thrust into a world um, that requires such a high level of, of relentless and ruthless competitiveness. And it's, it's definitely tough to form close bonds with people in that environment as well. And mm. that was something that honestly was really, really important to me. And I think it became obvious um in my late teens that actually i wasn't willing to make those those sacrifices and those are sacrifices that are required in order to make it to the very top i just didn't want to be in that position anymore and i started to sort of weigh up the pros and cons um and do the maths in my head and it just didn't really make sense anymore to be honest and luckily mm. i kept in mainstream education so i still had the option of going to college um, I did that, played um, college tennis in the US, then went on to get a master's degree. So I did have a number of eggs in different baskets, which meant that tennis wasn't luckily my my only option. Um, it, I wonder what your family's reaction to that was. So, so you mentioned your mum's a tennis coach and often we hear stories of people. I mean, I remember from having been made to play the piano for an extra two years just to see if I really didn't like it. Um, was there much push from people around you say oh well you know maybe give it another year or do this or do that 
Honestly, I think there was a, a, a sense of relief. If I'm being honest, <laughs> I think it became um, more and more clear over time that you know tennis wasn't going to be something that I pursued professionally. You know, there yeah. were physical, mental, and emotional barriers in place that would have prevented me from getting to the very top of the game. Mm. I knew that. I think the people around me knew that. I wasn't happy. Like I said, um, like I said there, you know that loneliness factor was making me quite unhappy, to be honest. Um, mm. And so I think the fact that I made that decision quite young came as as a relief more than anything. Um, yeah. And I think looking back, it, it would have been like like beating it a dead horse, if I'm totally honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what would you say were your, your best or, I mean, you know, t- to an extent, I, I can see that it wasn't for you. What would you say were your best or highest moments in when you were still playing at a serious level or that you enjoyed the most? Great question. Um, I think for me, it was always anything that was in a team environment. Mm. It's it's an interesting one because I'm actually reading Andre Agassi's book at the moment. And obviously he's Andre Agassi. And, you know, he has a lot of um, video footage to refer back to. But it does always baffle me how he's literally able to recount every single feeling and emotion that he felt during, like, you know, his the 10-year duration of his career. And I sort of read it and I'm like, I can't even remember who I played at this tournament. Let's know how I was feeling. And yeah. so I think it definitely is sort of all a bit of a blur, whether that's something that, you know, I, I've subconsciously done to protect myself. But definitely when I think back to, um, you know, my days playing, I always got the most enjoyment out of playing in a team environment, you know, at the junior, um, well, what was formerly referred to as the, as the junior Fed Cup and now, of course, is the junior uh, Billie Jean King Cup, which is an event that I now commentate on, an amazing right. event. Um, but yeah, I think just, um, you know, you're playing for someone else, you're playing for your country. It's, it's not just, you know, you in the mix. Mm. And, um, I think that's, yeah, really, really incredible, um, incredible thing to do. Mm. Tell me a bit about kind of jumping over the fence onto the other side. What, what, you know, you obviously work, as you mentioned, as a commentator, you do, you've done Wimbledon radio, all sorts of things, talking to players from the other side of the microphone. Um, what what would you say is the biggest difference about te- looking at tennis from a different perspective now? What what has maybe surprised you the most, or or not surprised you? I suppose. Ooh, um, I think it's really interesting um, to have both perspectives. Obviously, you know, playing tennis and experiencing the emotions that you feel as a tennis player, and then watching tennis and working in tennis. Um, and almost vicariously feeling those emotions as well, mm. but you're sort of, you're living them through someone else almost. Mm. So um, it definitely is nice to have have the two perspectives. I think as a player, you experience such a roller coaster of emotions yeah. and it's really incredibly difficult to regulate them. Um, it's almost quite addictive in a way, I think, because, you know, you're seeking those highs um, and, I think that's why a lot of people come back. You know, obviously we've had Wozniacki who's come back after giving birth, um, Svitolina, a growing number of female tennis players who are taking time out and then returning to the tour. Mm. Um, And my theory on that is because, you know, when tennis is taken away from them, they feel like they have a massive void to fill. 
Um, yeah. it's, it's this kind of emotional turmoil. It's a complete roller coaster of ups and downs. Um, and I think ultimately, though, you know, what, what comes up must come down. So like I say, it's, it's this like erratic roller coaster ride where one moment you're on top of the world and then the next you're literally in the depths of hell. <laughs> um, and I guess, I guess from, you know, the other side of the microphone, I'm not experiencing those emotions. It's the players who are experiencing those highs and, and, and those lows, but there definitely still is a sense of kind of vicariously you know a sense of empathy because I know how it feels yeah um but I myself am on a much more steady emotional journey which you know is something that I wanted something that works for me um and I'm still very much involved in the sport but I'm not in this state of like constant emotional turmoil and honestly Mm. I have such admiration for the players um you know doing what they do for for such a long period of time i just think it's absolutely incredible i think yeah and it's interesting to hear you say it but it is something even you know i've never played sport at any kind of real elite level um but it is something that going around the world as a journalist i've sort of started to not not i wouldn't say i can empathize but sympathize with at least yeah. is the you know the the grind the the being away from home all the time as you say being on your own you know journalists are a little bit like players in that when i'm at an event you know, i'm going to the rugby world cup literally today i will be the only person in paris on my team mm-hmm. you know they're, they're not going to send two people there so you're kind of although you do work in a little bit of camaraderie with other journalists from other papers you're still working against them to an extent and actually when you said yeah it is a very lonely life because you're always on tour with your opponents it, that is kind of the difficult thing that kind of afflicts your life is that that constant Absolutely. loneliness. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's not only that it's difficult to to form you know close bonds in the world of tennis. It's also that you're constantly away from home. So it's yeah. not like you have you know a particularly strong network of friends back home either, because yeah. you're constantly away. Yeah, and you're missing out on all those key moments, and yeah, you can you you're not. You can't do the pub quiz every Monday because you're only there every fifth Monday. And exactly, yeah, yeah it's that, that's the main thing I miss. To be honest, is the pub quiz. But you know, <laughs> and my partner and all that sort of important stuff as well. Um, so I should say, um, Pippa, really interesting to hear about your life and your career. Um, you obviously know a hell of a lot about tennis, so it would be remiss of us not to talk about some of the great tennis that's been going on over the last twenty four hours, and maybe have a little look ahead to uh, what's coming up on Wednesday as well, because the U.S. Open is reaching the sharp end of things. We're down to one court. Um, it all becomes a little bit more rarefied. Uh, it is still extremely hot, as far as I can tell. I was texting Mikey Hinks, who people will know from previous podcasts and who is out there doing my job in New York, and he says he's been on more than one topless run, which is not something he's ever done before. But <laughs> apparently everyone does it, and it's allowed. So fair play. Um <laughs> Let's start, because you mentioned it when we were discussing um, yesterday, Pippa, let's start with Coco Goff against Yelena Ostapenko, because I don't know about you, but I was really looking forward to this match, and, well, fortunately, it didn't take up much of my day, um, because it was 6-love, six 6-2, six and over in a heartbeat. I actually, I started building my new office chair as it started, and I hadn't finished by the time Goff had seen her off. Um, I, I, I imagine you didn't see that scoreline coming either. No, I didn't. And um, definitely not in 67 minutes, that's for Mm. sure. (laughs) Um, I did think that Coco Goff would win. 
Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily an upset as Goff obviously seeded six, Ostapenko mm. 20. Um, but Ostapenko was playing so well, you know, she'd beaten um, Fiontech in the previous round. So, um, and, and she's also a player who has such a big game, you know, Ostapenko on, on her heyday is pretty much unrivaled, I would say. Mm. Um, unfortunately, she just, she didn't show up, did she? Mm. Um, but I think, you know, Coco Goff is definitely, in in my opinion, a real contender for the title. It's an incredible mm. achievement to make it to the semi-final. She's still only 19 uh, years old. And let's also not forget that the last American team to do this was Serena Williams back in 2001. So I think that just goes to show um, her trajectory, you know, the incredible career that she has um, lying ahead for her. And going into this tournament, having won Washington uh, without losing a set, and mm. then Cincinnati having beaten Sviontek, I think there was a, a real sense of kind of high expectations and, and hope for her um, ahead of the US Open. You know, she's got a new coach. People were talking about how much of an impact Brad Gilbert is making on her game, how much more aggressive she's being, and, and how the work that they're putting in off the court was really starting to show uh, on the match court as well. But, you know, actually, having said that, despite all of this hope and expectation, it hasn't really been an easy journey for her um, getting through to the, the quarterfinals. This was by far her easiest match and um ahead of the one against Ostapenko she had I think it was three three set matches mm. so mm. at six yeah only 67 uh, minutes long this was by far the shortest match of the tournament for her so far and, and of course sorry go for it no, no no well I was gonna say and and great to kind of conserve energy in what is you know pretty tough conditions you need those quick matches don't you in a long tournament Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's been, um, I mean, I've not been out to the US Open, but everything I'm reading, everything I'm hearing, you know, the players are talking about how excruciating the conditions have been. But actually, um, I did read somewhere that Coco had actually asked, I think, to play in the heat of the day. Mm. Um, so she would put forward a request to the organisers um, of the tournament um because well presumably she felt that you know she's been putting in a lot of hard work off the court and actually she would fare better um in the brutal heat of the day than her opponent and well she was she was absolutely right wasn't she mm. yeah and i think you know actually funny enough i regular listeners will know that i love yelena ostapenko and kind of unashamedly think she's one of the best things about women's tennis <laughs> uh, just just because she you know she lives her life and she lives it on the court and you always know what she's thinking. I've been lucky enough to interview her a couple of times and she is hilarious and blunt. And I don't know, I think we just, we're kindred spirits maybe in that sense. But, you know, <laughs> one thing you can kind of always level at her is that she does. she's not the fittest player in the world. Um, and actually, I think she looks in pretty good shape at the moment. I think her, you know, in previous rounds, her physicality has not been too bad. Um, but yeah, I think, probably Coco's looked at it and gone well and and remember that you know she also had doubles to play yesterday so mm -hmm. there is also a consideration of well do if I ask to play late I'm gonna have to play doubles early would I rather play doubles early and then go and play singles or would I rather play singles early and then go and play doubles and I suspect that's the better way round 
Um, and she is still in the dance, by the way. She's she's in the quarters with uh, with Jessica Bagula, and probably I, I don't know about favourites for the title, but they are the highest ranked uh, pair left. Um, and you know, I wouldn't put it beyond Coco Goff to go and do the double, quite frankly. Um, uh, but yeah, I think probably playing in the heat against Yelena Ostapenko, just looking at it, it does seem like the right decision. Um, she's going to go and play Karolina Mukova in the semi-finals on Thursday um, after Mukova beat Serana Castella. Six love, six three, the classic tricky opponent. Um, people, we've seen a lot of Karolina Mukova, Mukova, I should say. I'm still learning to say her name properly, even though we have seen a lot of her uh, this year. She obviously made it to the French Open final. Um, she she is a, a very good player and a very interesting player, isn't she? She's, she's something a bit different. Yeah, she is. Um, especially on the women's tour, you know, there aren't that many players who have the sort of level of variety in in her game that um, that Mukaba has. Um, I didn't actually see the uh, the quarterfinal match, but mm. um, reading the scoreline this morning, you know, she, she absolutely annihilated her opponent. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, she'll, she'll be going into the match with, with a lot of confidence. Um, but on the other hand, um, they did actually face each other at Goff and Mukaba in Cincinnati mm. uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, there's that. Uh, I think that will be giving Goff a lot of confidence. And then, of course, you know, she's also the uh, the home favourite. She'll have the support of the home crowd. And the crowd in in New York are interesting, aren't they? Because it, there's, there's almost like a level of maliciousness when it comes to <laughs> supporting their home favourite. It's not like Wimbledon and, you know, the French Open, where obviously they have their favourites. There sort of is this kind of, this level of, of, of real, unwavering, relentless support that almost feels a little bit malicious to the opponent. Yeah. And, um, actually, that was something that Goff experienced in, in round one. Um, where it was, of course, quite a slow match, but the crowd were really in her favour there. It's it's something, you know, she she thrives off. Um, having said that, though, Mukova does have the experience of having already reached a Grand Slam title, um, uh, a Grand Slam final, final sorry. Yeah. So I think it will be, yeah, a really, really interesting match. Mm. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see how, I mean, the one thing that we've all talked about, the, don- the hind legs of a donkey about Coco's forehand, and uh, Brad Gilbert and Coco Goff have both independently said, no, no, we haven't done anything. Um, it's just, you know, believing in it a bit better. And actually, Marion Bartley did a really interesting piece of analysis on Sky talking about the increase in, in ball speed and racket head speed specifically uh, on the forehand side, which seems to be working. But Obviously, with Mukova, you're going to get a lot less power coming back. Against Ostapenko, the ball's coming to you quickly. You've got power to work with. Whereas with Mukova, more often, I suppose, you're going to have you know, the ball coming with big slice spin, um, potentially off both wings. And so she's going to have to generate her own power. And I think when you've got a shot that you're still kind of still mastering, um, I think that might, might cause a few problems. But yeah, it's interesting what you say about the crowd. Because last night we saw Novak Djokovic knock off Taylor Fritz in incredibly easy fashion. Um, although <clears throat> he sort of made it look hard in the third set because uh, someone high up in the, well, not that high up actually, in the stands called out. Uh, Novak left the ball, it landed in, and he ended up losing the point. 
and just screaming at these people in a box. Now, the surprising thing was when the cameras panned around, they weren't Taylor Fritz fans. They were people wearing Novak Djokovic's face on their shirts. (laughs) And uh, he eventually had them kicked out. But yeah, it's absolutely right what you say. Arthur Ashe, and you know, I was talking to Calvin about it the other day. Arthur Ashe is one of the weirdest tennis stadiums in the world because it is so, yeah, vociferous and rowdy. There's people standing up, sitting down all the time. You know, there's, it just it's all going on around you and I think what you've got to be able to do and probably what Novak Djokovic is pretty good at because he's pretty good at everything is just lock in and shut all that out and I guess that that's going to be the challenge for Ben Shelton isn't it is trying to upset that rhythm and and maybe try and get the crowd involved a bit more yeah I mean just on the on the Djokovic point there I actually found his post-match interview quite interesting because he very, very clearly had a, a bit of an angry outburst towards uh, some fans, like you say, in his mm. final against against Fritz. But afterwards, in his post-match uh, interview, he was very, very quick to tell the world that actually, you know, he thrives off home fans supporting a home player and it gives him energy. So I wonder, I listened to that and I thought, I wonder whether, um, you know, that was just an attempt to to cover up the fact that actually, you know, he did uh, let the fans get to him in a, in a rare emotional outburst. And suddenly, as he was talking, he realised that actually another home favourite would lie in wait in the form yeah. of uh, either Ben Shelton or, or Francis TFO. Obviously, now we know that it's uh, Ben Shelton. Uh, but that's something that, you know, he's going to have to face yet again in his semi-final. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to, to this match. And I think it's going to be a really interesting one um, because, again, it's kind of it's kind of like the passing of the baton, isn't it? It's like, um, you know, the, the stars of uh, today versus versus the stars of tomorrow. Mm. Um, Novak Djokovic, of course, the uh, the oldest US Open semi-finalist since 1991, I believe. Mm. And Ben Shelton is the youngest American male, uh, American male to reach the, uh, the semi-finals since 1992. And there's a 16-year age gap between these guys. Um, and Shelton, as we know, has an incredibly big game. He hit 50 winners, I believe, or 51 maybe, um, against um, TFO. He's hitting uh, 149 mile per hour serves. I think it was something like 14 aces against TFO. And what is clear as day is that Djokovic isn't going to be out rallied by anyone. So you mm. need to have those big weapons in order to make inroads against him. If we cast our minds back to the 2022 Wimbledon final, in which he played Kyrgios, okay, he, uh, Kyrgios didn't win, but it was, you know, it was a, a bit of a four-set scare. And the first set was basically won because Djokovic couldn't get a read on his serve. Mm. Um, and Kyrgios is another player who, you know, he's able to make dents into the game of Djokovic because he has those big weapons. So I think, you know, Shelton has some really big advantages going into this match. He's going to have the entire US Open crowd behind him. Mm. Um and like, you know, we were talking about that that sort of sense of maliciousness there. Um, he's a player who really, really thrives on the big stage. He now has the confidence as well of knowing that Djokovic has been beaten lately. Mm. Obviously, you know, Runa beat, has beaten him, Musetti has beaten him, and of course, Alcaraz at Wimbledon. So it's not as if he's this completely untouchable force of nature um, who no one 
can come close to. You know, people, um, players, his contemporaries have made dents um, and actually beaten him, you know, in the last year or so. So mm. I this is this is kind of the match that I think I'm most looking forward to, I would say. Yeah, I, I, me too, first of all, uh, and not just because I interviewed Ben Shelton quite recently and therefore it looks like I knew what I was talking about for the first time <laughs> in my life. Um, but also because I think it's going to be the first real character test of Ben Shelton, who he seems like a very level-headed, um, quite sort of straightforward young chap. But I think when you look at everything that he's been through so far in his first year as a pro, what he's never really had is the weight of expectation. Mm-hmm. And okay, he's playing the goat, and so he is the underdog. But as you say, he's going to walk out, and everyone in Arthur Ashe is going, "Go on, mate, get, take a chunk out of him." And actually, there is a pressure that comes with that, and how he kind of deals with that. And that he's got a really good team with him. He's got his dad in his box, who, um, you know, is not just his dad; like he was a, a very high-level college coach. Um, so I think that'll help him. But just dealing with that, you know kind of a mind fuck really of of going through everything that comes with playing Novak Djokovic and then it's your first Grand Slam semi-final and then it's your home Grand Slam and okay you've only been a pro for a year I think just just if he's able to block all that out and just let his game do the talking look I think if he if he loses in four sets it's still a pretty big achievement quite frankly um given his level of inexperience I know we've spent our lives saying that you know he's got to try and beat these guys and not just be happy to be on court with them but I, th- I think there is probably a little opportunity there, but I think it's going to need a Djokovic blow up as well as Shelton have his very best day. Yeah, and I think it's also a case of, you know, is he going to come out and play the occasion or is he going to come out and play the player? Um, mm. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's a level of um, anxiety, I think, that that might be provoked by the fact that, you know, there is this 16-year gauge uh, age gap between the two players. So I'm sure Djokovic will be someone that um, Shelton has watched win his first Grand Slam years and years ago and, and the um, all of the 22 subsequent ones he's won ever since. So I think it will be a case of, you know, can he just focus on the process, focus on the things that have been, um, you know, successful for him in his tournament so far, rather than actually letting the occasion and the player getting the better of him? Mm, yeah. Um, the other side of the draw, we should look briefly ahead to, to Thursday or Wednesday's matches, I should say. The problem with doing the US Open from this side of the Atlantic is I never know what day it is, mainly. Um, but anyway, it is Wednesday and there are more matches on Wednesday. It's just not quite Wednesday yet in America. Anyway, um, Marquesa Vondrasova against Madison Keys, uh, Chung against Irina Sabalenka, and then Alcaraz Zverev and Medvedev Rublev. I have to say, Pippa, I'm slightly more inspired by the uh, men's quarterfinals today than the women's. Although I think Chung Sabalenka has some real kind of intrigue to it because I think, and I am still learning to say her name properly, Chung Shin Wen is a star of the future I mean if not already a star of the now yeah absolutely um and I mean most of my commentary is uh on the WTA side so <laughs> you might be more interested in the men's but I'm uh, yeah. I'm definitely more interested in the women's at the moment good <laughs> um and yeah that uh that Zheng Sabalenka match um I think is is an interesting one so Zheng is a name that you know not many people will have heard of um mm. 
And actually, I didn't catch her fourth round match against uh, Jabor. But it doesn't surprise me that she's had a bit of a breakthrough, to be honest. Mm. You know, her mm. resume might be quite short, but it's definitely extremely impressive. She's beaten uh, Daria Kazakina. She's beaten Ostapenko. Uh, I mean, obviously, Ostapenko, we know, can sort of beat anyone or lose to anyone on any yeah. day. <laughs> um, but she did that en route to the semifinals in Abu Dhabi. Uh, she won her first tour title in July in Palermo. Mm. And let's not forget that she also pushed Sviantec uh, to three sets this summer in uh, in Cincinnati. That was just a couple of weeks ago. So mm. he is still only 20 years old. So she's relatively inexperienced, particularly on the big stage. Her breakthrough has come quite recently. So that will be, yeah. you know, quite, um, quite tough for her to, to cope with. This will be a, a first for her. Mm. Um, but it'll be a match against two incredible ball strikers. Um, I don't see her going all the way against Sabalenka, if I'm being totally honest. Mm. But I definitely think it will be Sabalenka's closest contest yet. Um, and it will set her up nicely for um, a semi-final against either Keys or Wondrusheva. Mm. Um, Arena Sabalenka, of course, is the new world number one, thanks to Iga Shontek's, um defeat to... Uh, Yelena Ostapenko, it means no matter what happens, Sabalenka, she will be world number one for the first time when the rankings refresh on Monday. Uh, we've kind of been expecting this to happen at some point, but we weren't quite sure when. And I'm sure if you're a player, sometimes you wonder if it'll ever happen. Um, did, did, did you think, you know, four years ago when Arena Sabalenka was hitting 30 double faults a match and kind of going to pieces on court on a regular basis, do you ever think that her game would all come together? And, and what do you think has been the key to, to making that happen? Four years ago, definitely not. Um, even a year ago, definitely not, if I'm being totally honest with you. Um, you know, if you'd have asked me this question at the beginning of the year, I would have said no. But then, you know, at the, at the United Cup and in, in Melbourne, obviously, we saw a few cracks in the game of Sviantec. And mm. Sabalenka had her, her Grand Slam breakthrough uh, in that incredible final against Rabakina, which I think really set her up nicely for what's been definitely the most successful season of her career so far. It's given her confidence at the big stage. Um, you know, even a year ago, she was winning all of those titles at, you know, 250, 500 level. But there were big question marks over, you know, could she go all the way in a, in a Grand Slam? Um, and I think she's she's a completely different player to the one she was a, a year ago when she was plagued by by double faults and you just never really knew what to what to expect from her, did you? Mm. And I think now she really personifies all of the characteristics of a world number one, both mentally and physically. Um, and the biggest change for me has come in the form of her mindset. She's a much, much calmer player um, mm. on tour now than she was a year ago. She's she's always been pretty animated. Um, she's still quite animated. You know, she does show her emotions, but I don't think she lets them get the better of her. And that was something she talked about after the Australian Open. Um, you know, she'd worked with a number of sports psychologists, none of whom had really been able to to make a dent or make a real difference until it was her herself who decided that actually she needs to be her own sports psychologist. She mm. has the power to, um, to to dictate how she reacts on court, and that's been um, that's been the key for me and the reason why she's been able to make the breakthroughs that she has um, in the last few months. But I did find it quite interesting what she said um, about 
actually being quite sad that um, that the, the work the title of, of world number one had been granted to her um, off the back of Sviontek's uh, loss yeah. and she said after the match that you know she was she was sure they'd meet in the final and she wanted to battle it out on court you know let the tennis do the talking yeah. and I think this just evidences how battle ready she is um, sure. and, and how much the rivalry between her and Sviontek has actually pushed her to find those very small marginal gains. And, you know, she's not just letting it come to her. She's going out and she's fighting for it. And, and she wants to go out and compete and, and win those matches on the big stage. And I think, you know, her, her win at the Australian Open has been the foundation for what's been an absolutely incredible season for her. Uh, three titles, two finals, uh, and then reached the semis in Roland Garros and at Wimbledon. So she has been incredibly consistent. And I think the hmm. rivalry between her and Sviontek and her and Rabakina has been what's really motivated her. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, she, you know, she's one win away now from reaching at least the semifinals at every Grand Slam. And if there's one thing the women's game is crying out for at the moment, it is that kind of consistency of the same three or four names being at the, the latter end of tournaments. Um, and I, I think, to be honest, you know, if you look at the quarterfinals here, Sabalenka, Goff, Mukova have all been in Grand Slam finals already uh, this year, um, or, or in the last two years, I should say. So you've got some consistency there. Don't forget Marketa von Jusseva, who obviously won Wimbledon, albeit none of us expecting that. Iona Ostbenko, who is a previous French Open champion. Mm -hmm. So I think there probably is a decent blend now. And, you know, Sabalenka, it is interesting, all the kind of mental stuff she's been through. She's got Jason Stacey, who's a kind of mental coach, but seems a little bit less sports psychology than maybe previous guys have been. Um, I think the most interesting thing I read, Anton Dubrov, her coach, saying um, that when they were in pre-season, he said, we spoke about preparing yourself here on the practice court like it's going to be, as in when you come into practice, go through all the same emotions that you would on court so that you can practice dealing with them here so that it's not just you know, it all goes badly for 20 minutes on the match court and you're like, oh my God, I don't have any mental coping strategies for this. Um, and I think that, you know, I think you're absolutely right when you say that that is the biggest thing that has changed about her. I think also people who've, you know, I'm privileged to meet her a couple of times kind of in fairly informal situations and she's a really kind of bubbly character. You know, she's quirky and a bit weird and, and mm -hmm. you know, she that sometimes doesn't come out on court um, because when she crosses the the white line, if you like, she just turns into an ant, like a, like a, a kind of monster, you know. And I, in a good way, I mean, she turns into a fighter and a warrior and an incredible tennis player. And I sometimes think being able to switch that on and off can be quite challenging. But once you can do once you can do it, then I think it makes an absolutely massive difference. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it, it was. Um... It was interesting what she said after the Australian Open, actually, because she was um, she mentioned that everyone was telling her that actually she needed to be more boring on the court. <laughs> and yeah. if, you, if, if we cast our minds back to the to the Sabalenka that we saw on court last year, I mean, there was literally never a dull moment, was there? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> she was very animated on court. You kind of always knew what she was thinking, which as a spectator, I actually quite like because, you know, yeah, she definitely. wears a heart on her sleeve. Um, and she was always quite erratic, I would say, 
both from a tennis perspective and, and from a mental perspective as well. She was plagued by double faults. And I actually don't think there was anything structurally wrong with her serve. It was more of a case of, you know, what was going on in her mind during those key moments. Um, and actually, she was saying in that interview that she's worked out that she just needs to be a little more dull and a little more boring on court. Mm. And I think what she's referring to there is actually the stability of her mindset and her attitude it's not boring it's not dull but it's it's more of a stable force and you know clearly she's worked out what she needs to do mentally to win those matches on the big stage um and you know it definitely had more to do with uh, the mental side of things than it did her tennis Hmm. um we're running out of time pippa but i'm going to ask you for some predictions because well george isn't here and usually he would force me to to give some predictions so i've got to do it on his behalf um We'll go for overall winners rather than trying to pick the bones out of every quarterfinal. Uh, at this point in time, who do you think is going to win the, the US Open women's title? Okay, so can I just say that... Uh, <laughs> this is already good hedging. This is great hedging. So someone asked... This is, this is a bit of a cop-out, but someone asked me um, the exact same question ahead of the US Open, and I said, I guarantee you it's going to be an American female winner. Now, when I said that, I did have Coco Goff and Jessica Pagula in the forefront of my mind. Obviously, there is now um, another contender for the title in the form of Madison Keys, Mm -hmm. um, who I perhaps wasn't expecting to make it this far. (laughs) But I think my prediction still stands. I'm going to go with an American female winner. Bit of a cop out, but there you go. I've heard worse cop-outs, honestly. George, George <laughs> Belshaw's a king of them. Um, and and in the in the men's, who who are you picking in the men's? Oof, I'm going to have to go with Djokovic. Mm. Um, I would love, I would love a Shelton or or, <laughs> or an Alcaraz. Yeah. Um, I just think Djokovic has too much of a chip in his on his shoulder, having um, lost to Alcaraz in the final of Wimbledon. Um, and actually, I think that outburst yesterday showed how much it means to him. It mm. showed how motivated he still is and how much he wants to go after these records um, and these trophies. I mean, he is just breaking records after records, isn't he? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. made I think he made history um, because he's reached the last four of a slam for the 47th time. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I sometimes just absentmindedly browse through the list of records held by Novak Djokovic, and it is completely insane. I, I, I'm minded to agree with you. Um, I rather think Sabalenka might win the women's draw. Um, I just, just for all the reasons we've kind of just said, mm-hmm. um, and I think she probably wants to sort of cement that world number one status. Uh, I, I can't pick between Djokovic and Alcaraz. I, before the tournament, I said I thought Djokovic would for, for similar reasons. I think there's a huge chip on his shoulder and. There's no one better when he's, you know, got something to fight against. You know, as we've seen from the US Open final against Daniil Medvedev, that was the one occasion when I think everyone kind of thought, well, yeah, we'd quite like to win this. It'd be pretty historic. And it, frankly, he bottled it. It all went to pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, anyway, Pippa, I think we have probably run out of time. You've been very generous with yours. Um, I've got to go and, well, pack for a flight for two and a half weeks. 
uh, which is this is about as last minute as I leave it. In fairness, I'm usually slightly more organised, but um, that's something that, that I'm, I'm working on it. But thank you so much for joining us, and I really hope you'll uh, you'll come on again. Absolutely, yes, I would love to uh, enjoy France. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much. Sports Social Podcast Network.